invite you to open your Bible this morning to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. We've been going through the Psalms in the evening services, but as I explained last week, we're going to, I saved Psalm 22 for this morning since we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's a Psalm that really depicts in an amazing way, powerful way, the suffering of our Lord and his victory. Psalm 22. Let's give our attention to the word of God. Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord... Do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the ones who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word this morning. 
Well, God in heaven, thank you for this inspired word, this revelation. And Lord, I pray that you would inscribe it in our heart. Draw us to yourself, draw us to our Savior, and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 22 is a psalm of suffering. Uh, It is a poem that's etched with pain, spills out of a broken heart. Uh, The first line, maybe the most captivating line in the the psalm, it it comes from the depths of a devastated soul. Uh, Someone who's trapped in the nightmare of spiritual abandonment. Someone who feels deserted by God. And as those made in the image of God, uh, there is no more desperate, hopeless, terrifying experience than to feel abandoned by your Creator. And so the the verses that flow and follow are, are... just racked with pain, portraits uh, of, of grief and loss and, and shame and heartbreak. And uh, we, can, we can resonate with that. We find that to be relevant because we do suffer and we will suffer. Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward, Job says. Uh, and that suffering occurs on a, on a spectrum from uh, just bad days where nothing works, you don't get, didn't get enough sleep, the car won't start, uh, the traffic is backed up, the boss is grumpy, the project is a mess, the kids are throwing up, and uh, it promises to be a long night, and then tomorrow you need to start all over again. So that's normal human suffering. Uh, but it's also normal that we suffer in terms of relationships with other people. We, we suffer the pain of being ignored, uh, of being uh, put on the outside, being rejected. We, we suffer uh, the pain of being slandered or gossiped about, uh, maybe even being betrayed, and that maybe even by those the very closest to you. Uh, we suffer physical ailments, um, the, the, the fear that something might be wrong, and then the diagnosis affirming that something is, is truly wrong with us or with our children or those we love. We'll, we'll, we'll get breathtaking bad news in our lifetimes, uh, that you've been let go from the job, uh, you've been diagnosed with an incurable disease or a terminal disease, uh, your child has, has been beaten or has been in an accident, a loved one has unexpectedly suddenly passed away. You'll get those phone calls. And you'll experience then suffering that will break your heart, suffering that will shake the foundations of your faith. There will be days of utter despair and nights when God seems far away, if not actively vindictive. These are common experiences of God's people. Every single one of us will experience one or more of them, and some of you are experiencing them this morning. And so this is a psalm for sufferers. There's a universal quality to it, though it's written by David. It's not linked to any specific event in his life, not to uh, any series of events. There there are things in here that it it doesn't seem that David ever experienced. And so uh, it has this timeless quality. Uh, We're going to see that it's, it's a portrait of suffering in faith, and it points to the suffering of Christ. And so our two main points are first uh, a believer's sorrow. We're going to look at what it means like what it means to suffer in faith as a Christian, as a believer, and then we're going to see how Christ 
fulfills this suffering and the difference, uh, this psalm and the difference that makes. And so first, a believer's sorrow. Uh, you, you, you can't miss that this is, a, this is a believer crying out. This is a believer's struggle. My God, my God. It's a broken but believing heart. Uh, this is a suffering that is unique to a child of God. My God. You see, that, that's a relationship that he's appealing to. Why have you forsaken me? This is the grief of someone who had, had believed in God, and it's directed to God. This is not a man complaining to a friend. This is a soul crying to the Lord and specifically asking questions, penetrating questions, heartbreaking questions of God. There are four questions in the first few verses, two explicit and two implicit. The first explicit question, why have you forsaken me? Uh, the, the Hebrew term can also be translated, failed me. There were expectations the psalmist had. These expectations have not been met. Why are you so far from saving me? Again, expectations that have been fundamentally not met. Uh, why don't you respond to the words of my groaning? It's a very strong word. It can be, it's, it can be translated as roaring. This, this heart cry, this, this experience of devastating loss and grief, why don't you respond to that? Why do you not answer and give me rest? Those are questions that a, a believer asks. Now there are different, there's, there's two fundamentally different ways to ask those questions. One way would be accusatory, and the other is just, it's a, it's a, it's a cry of bewilderment. It's it, it, it would be the difference, husbands, if you ever forgot your wife's birthday, which I hope you never have done, but if you do, she has two ways of asking the question, right? Why did you forget my birthday, exclamation point, is an accusation, justified accusation, but that's what it is. Why did you forget my birthday, question mark, maybe with tears coming down her face, is an Entirely and far more devastating thing. See, you can come to God with questions in a way that honors Him, and you can come to God with questions in a way that fundamentally dishonors Him. One way to ask these questions is to accuse God, to bitterly and self righteously charge God with negligence. That's the way the world questions and challenges God. I remember Stephen Fry, British, um, oh, celebrity, being asked on, uh, being interviewed on TV and being asked, you know, if he ever was, he's an atheist, pr proud atheist, and if you ever actually met God, what would you say to him? He said, well, I don't think it's ever going to happen, but if it did happen, this is what I'd say to him. I'd say, how dare you? How dare you make little kids suffer? What gives you the right? Not really connecting the dots, of course, that this would be God he's talking to. But that's the way the world challenges, and that's the way our, we challenge God when we grumble or complain. You see, what gives you the right? It's an accusation. But that's not what this is. This is not an accusation. It's not a rebellious heart rebuking God for failure. It is, it's much more sad and profound. You see, it's, it's, it's a heartbroken cry of a, of a confounded man, an utterly bewildered man who had believed 
that God would do things. And, and a man who had been convinced that, that in the moment of trial, that God would be there. That God would draw near to those who are in trouble. That God would answer when he cried out. And that God would help him when he needed the help. But none of that has happened. God hasn't helped. The situation just got worse. The calamities mounted. The grief just increased. The fears multiplied. And, and God, the God in whom he had believed, the God whom he trusted in, did nothing. Nothing. Just silence. And, and so the, the, this, this question that comes undoubtedly through tears is, why? Why? It, it's not an accusation. It's faith that's grasping for air. His, his world of, 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 of belief has been knocked off its axis, and he's struggling to get his spiritual bearings. Everything that he believed about God, he had been convinced about God, that God was his God. Now it all is it's unraveling. It seems to be coming untrue. And maybe you've had that experience. That you had believed that God would be close in the day of trouble and that you had trusted that God would hear the words of your groaning and he would give an answer. He'd give relief. He'd give rest. But in the, in the reality of the hour of trial, it, he didn't. And in your grief, you, you, you just wondered why. why. Why doesn't he help? Why doesn't he answer? Why has God abandoned me? Andrew Peterson, songwriter, has a song called The Silence of God. He said, it's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleating for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and heaven's only answer is the silence of God. It'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart, when he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not, when the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. So that's, that's the cry of the psalmist. What is, what's, what's he going through that's making him hurt like this and, and question God in this way? Well, we see the suffering as he describes it here in, in, the, in verses uh, 6 and following particularly, there's scorn and derision. I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. That seems like a small thing. Just remember when you were young and, and, and all the rest of the kids maybe were calling you names. It's not true, is it, that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Words can be devastating. Maybe you've had... Uh, angry, awful, hateful accusations thrown at you. Maybe uh, you've been slandered maliciously. Words are meant to hurt often, and, and they do. And he's mocked even, you see, for his faith. The, the, the people are deriding him. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. At least that's what you said. You see, the, the world will often mock Christians when Christians suffer. Aren't you the guy that goes to church? Aren't you the lady that's been inviting me to the Bible study? Aren't you the student that always prays off by yourself in the cafeteria before the meals? Fat lot of good that does you. I mean, what a loser. What a loser. Even your God hates you. Now, here in West Michigan, we don't experience this sort of mocking that often, but we have brothers and sisters around the world who do constantly, continually. 
And so there's, there's just the experience of being shamed and mocked. And, and then there's fear, verses 12 through 15. Graphic depictions of fear. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and, and roaring lion. Uh, have you ever been face-to-face with an angry bull? I have. It's not a fun experience. We had a big man, Mr. Osterhaus, in the prime of his life. Big man. Killed by a bull one Sunday morning in, uh, in the barn. They mean business. You're facing an animal with, of pure, malevolent intent, who utterly unreasoning, right? You, you can't talk him out of it. And the absolute power to do with you whatever he wants to do. That's what the man who's writing the experiences. And the, the response is fear. It's, 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 it's paralyzing, bone-melting fear. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. Have you experienced that panic of, of deep loss? The bone-melting fear of tragic news. The mouth-drying sickness of grief. You see, God's people, they, they know these things. We don't talk about it often. Because it's, it's sort of on the outskirts, the margins of, of what we might call living in faith. But it's real. It's real. And in all that, there's this, this confusion. And that's really what the psalm depicts so well. It's this, it's this how, do you, how do you put this stuff together? How do you put together what you had believed about God and what you're experiencing in your life? And so you find this back and forth, this ebb and flow. If you just look at the psalm itself, I can point it easily out to you. Verse 3 is, yet you. Verse 6, but I. Verse 9, yet you. Verse 12 through 18, full of me and my. Verse 19, but you. See, it's, the focus goes to the reality he's experiencing, and then he's thinking about God and what he's done, and then he's, it's back to what he's experiencing, and then back to God, and, and he's trying, how do you put these things together? Because you see, sometimes the thoughts of God don't fix the problem. Look at verses 3 through 5. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. See, that's comforting and profoundly confusing. Because if if God is holy, it means he doesn't do wrong. He doesn't fail his people ever. And and, and David can remember the, the stories that he's been told of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua. Uh, they trusted in the Lord and the Lord delivered them. They cried to the Lord and they were rescued. But it begs the question, if that was all true for them, why haven't you rescued me? They were not put to shame, so why am I left to be the object of scorn and derision. That's, that's the challenge of, of knowing God and knowing truths about God. How, how does that fit with what I'm experiencing? And then verse 9, he goes back to the Lord, yet you, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you've been my God. He, you are my God by creation and by covenant. 
Ever since I was a baby, you brought me out of the womb and you brought me into the covenant. You've been my God my entire life. And then jumps right back into 12 and 18. So how do I explain this? Many bulls encompass me. My heart is like wax. My strength is dried up. My tongue clings to my jaws. I count on all my bones. You've laid me in the dust of death. How do you, how do you reconcile that? And so he reconciles it just with a cry of, of help. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. And, 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 and the, 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 the requests here, come quickly, deliver me. Save me. You see, it's, it's a man who's going under the waves for the last time. God, help. Remember we've said that's the best prayer often that, that we can offer? It's just help. God, help. He's recounted what he knows to be true about God, and he's going to throw himself on that truth as he knows it. God, help. He's not going to abandon God. He's not going to turn his back on God. He's not going to say, if this is how you are, I'm done with you. I'm out of here. As he, re, as he recounts what he knows to be true about God, and he's trying to mesh that with his circumstances, at the end, all he can do is throw himself, and there he finds a foothold, you see. Immediately as he, as he, come quickly, deliver me, save me, then you'll notice miraculously, finally his faith gets a hold of something. His foot touches bottom. Verse 21b, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Where did that come from? Well, it, it, somehow, you see, in the recounting of God's character, in the recounting of God's saving works in the past, in the recounting of the fact that, that God is his personal God by virtue that God knit him in his mother's womb and that God placed him personally in the context of his, of his redemptive covenant, that, that this is a God that can be appealed to, and he does appeal to him, and he recovers his spiritual senses. You see, faith finally wins out. It cannot be true. No matter that the, if the bulls of Bashan are surrounding me, it doesn't mean that they've conquered me. You have rescued me. The terrors around him, you see, are not the ultimate truth. And, and then the rest of the psalm just moves into this psalm of deliverance and praise. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. This is a man who's been delivered, and he's gathering the people together, and he says, let me tell you what God has done for me. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Why? For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. You see, suffering is not the end of the story. The silence of God is not the last word. We live the Christian life knowing that the outcome, even though we don't quite know how it's going to all happen, but the outcome is, is, is certain. It's like watching a, a, a rerun of a, of a great classic football game where, where your team was down, right, four touchdowns in the last quarter, and there was an utterly no hope, and yet you, you, you know how it ends. Miraculously, they, they, they come back and, and they win. And maybe you're sitting with other people who don't know, and so um, they're gripped in, in the context there, and you're just sitting back smiling as the other team just piles on points and points and points, and, and you're just having some more chips and 
enjoying looking around the room and seeing the angst and the anxiety, you know how it's going to end. And, and, and the more difficult it looks, the more impossible it looks, the more you smile because that just means the glory is going to be all the greater when the victory is accomplished. And, and that's, that's what David has come to in Psalm 22. But there's, there's not just a wonderful depiction of how believers struggle in, with faith in the context of trials and great lessons are for us, but there's much, much more here. This is, this is a psalm ultimately about the believer's Savior. You see, it, it, it does portray wonderfully the, the struggle of faith, but, but much more than that, it, it, it gives us a foundation for faith because it points us in an incredible way to Christ himself. This is a psalm that ultimately can only be applied to Jesus. It's his psalm. No one else can claim everything that's in this psalm like Jesus can Commentators universally agree that this psalm supersedes any experience that David had or that we will ever have. We have already said there's no specific incident in David's life. That's because David didn't experience many of these things. Right? Count all my bones, divide up my clothes, pierce my hands and his feet. He's talking about a crucifixion, which was not even a form of execution, as best we know, until years and years later when the Romans came to power. There's no mention of sin in this psalm. When David writes about his experiences, even when he's experiencing great trials and, and the mocking and terror, there's almost always somewhere in there a, an acknowledgement of his sin. Great example, Psalm 69. 69 verse 4 and 5. David's crying out to the Lord, "'More in number than the hairs of my head "'are those who hate me without cause.'" Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Do you see the, the injustice as he, that he's experiencing at the, at the mouths and hands of other people? And then verse 5, oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. No matter what other people are saying, uh, even that that's not true. God, you know what is true. You know what I've done. It's not hidden from you. That's, that's just how David experiences suffering. That's how we often experience suffering. It's not how this, the person Psalm 22 experiences. He seems to be without sin. There's, there's no acknowledgement of sin anywhere in the psalm. The, the, the Spirit of God, you see, the Spirit of Christ inspires these words from the pen of David, prophesying the suffering and the death that was only going to be fulfilled in the suffering and death of Christ. And so when you hear these words coming from the, the lips of Jesus, they explode with brand new significance. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Where's that coming from? That's coming from the, the lips and the devastated soul of Jesus on the cross. But see, as, as, as Christ asks the question, it raises that question to a whole new level. It's not just a person um, th- th- that's, that's wrestling. There's a, there's, a, there's a real quandary here. You see, we can think of reasons why Christ might abandon us, why God might forsake us. The world and the flesh and the devil will all point out perfectly good reasons why God maybe should abandon you. But why is Jesus asking the question? Why is God forsaking his sinless 
perfect, precious, obedient, loving son whom he loves. Why doesn't God answer him or help him? And and why does God allow Jesus, this son, to experience this kind of abandonment? But he did. Jesus experienced the scorn. Almost exactly as it's prophesied in Psalm 22. Matthew 27, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, exactly what David wrote. They wag their heads, they mock me. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. That's a direct quote from Psalm 22, whether they knew it or not. It's very likely they did. Think of the irony of that. They're using God's word, prophesying this very death, and they're the ones doing the mocking. That's what Christ experienced. He experienced the grief and the terror of the prospect of his death. Psalm 14, verses 14 and 15, that's exactly what Christ experiences in the garden of Gethsemane as he sweats drops of blood. And, and, and there on the cross, he experiences this, this mouth-drying torment and fear. My tongue sticks to my jaws. What did Jesus say in the cross? I thirst. He experienced, they pierced my hands and my feet. Jesus did. He experienced the shame of being there uh, nailed to that cross, naked. The the, the clothes are being divided. John specifically points to this prophecy fulfilled, John 19, 24. Uh, This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And, And so Jesus' naked body is pinned to that cross. And people gloat, and they mock, and they stare. And see, and out of that experience... And all the soul-wrenching judgment and wrath of God, he just, he cries out, why, why have you forsaken me? So this is Jesus' psalm. Fundamentally, it's Jesus' psalm. Now, why does that matter? Because we could just say, well, that's neat. Here we have an Old Testament prophecy, and it's fulfilled in Jesus, and I love when that happens. But why does it matter? Why does it matter to the life you live? Why does it matter to the suffering that you are maybe experiencing now or the suffering that you're going to experience? Well, let me just wrap up with, with two reasons it matters. First, it matters because it means that, that Jesus knows our suffering. He entered into, you see, the, the full reality of humanity and human existence. Though he's without sin, he knows fear, he knows shame. He knows even what it feels like to be... To be uh, the sense of guilt, to be the, an, an object of divine displeasure and judgment, what it feels like to be forsaken by God. He knows by experience, not just by divine omniscience. He walked it. And so you see, when your world feels like it's spinning out of control, it's not out of His. He knows. And he wants you to know that he knows. Uh, there's, there's a fellowship of suffering. And, and, and anytime you suffer in some way, you, 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 you find that you're, you relate to some people in a different way. There's a fellowship of, of people who've, of parents who've lost a child. There's a fellowship of, of spouses who have a spouse with Alzheimer's. There's, there, are, there are unique trials and 
griefs that, that in a sense only they know. Well, Jesus wants you to know that, that when you suffer, you enter into a fellowship with him. That there are things that he knows. And so the Bible says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Psalm 22, uh, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews picks that up. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. There's a fellowship, a bond with Christ in our suffering. He knows. Peterson writes this, and the man of all sorrows, he never forgot what sorrow is carried by the hearts that he bought. The aching may remain, but the breaking does not in the holy, lonesome echo of the silence of God. So it might seem that God is silent, but God is there. How can you know that he's there? Well, we know it because Christ has conquered suffering. Jesus, you see, destroyed alienation. He destroyed divine abandonment. Commentators point out that Jesus quotes twice from Psalm 22 on the cross, from the very first verse and from the very last verse. The first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that, that question, again, has an answer for people like us. We know why God would maybe forsake us. Those who forsake the Lord have every reason to be expected to be forsaken by Him. If you're here this morning and you really don't have any concern for the things of God, maybe you have a sense that you need to be in church, but you have no sense that you need Jesus Christ desperately and you're just living your life, there's every reason for God to forsake you. And if you don't repent, he will forsake you. And it's justified. It's reasonable. It's what rebellion against God rightly deserves. But why, you see again, why is Jesus crying it? And the answer that the scripture gives is that he, it's because he who was without sin was made to be sin. You see, this is evidence that his death is really a guilt-atoning death. It's a guilt-bearing death. He, there's no reason for Jesus to be abandoned unless he is bearing guilt, bearing shame, bearing iniquity. He is forsaken precisely and only because of the load that he's carrying as he takes your sin, my sin, on himself. But even then, this is the beauty of Jesus, even as he was being crushed by the wrath of God due to our sin, even though his, his sorrows abounded, his devotion was constant. He, he knew why he was there. Jesus knows Psalm 22. Probably knew it by heart. And as Psalm 22, you see, it becomes his, his reality as he enters into this. As the derision is heaped on him and, and the terror of judgment dries his mouth and the, 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 the torment of the cross makes his bones melt like wax as his hands and feet are being pierced. As, it, as, that, as that's unfolding, as it's happening, he knows why he's there. He knew what this was. He knew what it would accomplish. Verse 26, the afflicted of the earth will eat and be satisfied. Verse 27, the ends of the earth will turn unto the Lord. Verse 28 29, the prosperous of the earth, the proud will bow before him. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he rules over the nations. You see, Jesus knows what he's doing. 
He's achieving the mighty salvation of God. He's turning back the curse due to Adam's sin. He's crushing the serpent's head. He's satisfying the demands of the law and taking that writ of judgment that stood against you and against me and he's nailing it to the cross. He knew what he was doing. He was purchasing the souls of men. He's reconciling sinners to God. He's laying the foundations of an eternal kingdom. He's setting free those who all their lives have been held in slavery by the fear of death. And he's sowing the seeds of a new heaven and a new earth, beginning the restoration of all things. His death is the fulcrum upon which redemptive history swings. And there in that cross, the old was passing away and everything, everything was becoming new. He knew what he was doing. And as he moved through the torment of Psalm 22, he knows how the psalm ends. Verse 30 and 31, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told to the Lord, of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That he has done it can also be translated that it is finished. And that's precisely, you see, Christ's final cry on the cross as he gives up his life to telestai. It is finished. It is accomplished. I have done it. I've done it. And see, that makes all the difference in the world. It means no matter how great your sin, and it is far, far greater than you know, It can be and is in Christ eternally and fully forever forgiven. If God punished his sinless son to this degree as he bore your sin, there is no punishment left. There can't be. Ever. We'll deal with that tonight. It means that no matter how great your suffering no matter how profoundly abandoned you might feel. Your feelings are not ultimate truth. The suffering and sorrow is real, and Jesus acknowledges that it's real. But it's not ultimate reality. Jesus and his redemptive work is ultimate reality for you and for me. The soul then that on Jesus has leaned for repose. He will not, he will not desert to his foes. And that soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, God gives you by promise an oath sealed with the blood of his own son. I will never, no never, no never forsake. And that's the foundation we stand in. And on that foundation, then we can bear the sorrows and the sufferings, endure the losses, the fears, the times of despair, even terror, knowing that there's a foundation. We're not at loss in a sea of sorrow. We're not not cast into an abyss of despair. There's a foundation. Jesus Christ has done it. He secured your reconciliation with God. He's accomplished your ultimate triumph. He claims you as a brother. He promises he's with you. And he assures you that he'll lead you home. May God grant that assurance to your heart as you lean for repose.
in Jesus. And if you've never leaned for repose in Jesus, if you're just playing the game, I plead with you that you turn and confess your sin and come to Christ today. He is Lord. Let's pray. God in heaven, you know what you have ordained for us. You know what some of us, the valleys that we've been through, the waters that we've already crossed. You know the fears that are on our hearts and minds. You know every trial and every pain, every tear we're going to cry. And Father, I thank you that you gave Jesus because our ultimate obstacle to joy in life is not trials, but our sin, our alienation from you, the God who made us. And I thank you that Jesus Christ came and took care of the the ultimate issue and that Jesus Christ promises to walk with us then through all the trials. I thank you that our feelings are not ultimate. Our fears are not the final word. But the cross and our Savior and all that he accomplished there, that's the final truth. And I pray, oh God, that you would give your people the grace to stand there, to stand in that grace that all the goodness of God flows to us forever because of Jesus. Give us, Lord, the ability to persevere in suffering. Some of us today have broken hearts. I pray that we would find Jesus there in all of his saving grace, in all of his, the fellowship of his suffering, and that we'd be comforted there and brought through. Thank you for the table that we can gather around now where Jesus Christ meets us and assures us in these signs and seals that everything we've heard is absolutely true. To Jesus belongs all the praise. Amen. I'd like to invite the elders to come forward.